this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons and my aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. But as for certain truth, no man has known it, nor will he know it, neither of the gods nor yet of all the things of which I speak. And even if by chance he were to utter the perfect truth, he would himself not know it, for all is but a woven web of guesses. These are the words of Greek philosopher Xenophanes, written around 500 BCE. Xenophanes was sceptical of claims to knowledge, and as this poem suggests, that even if there are certain objective truths about the universe, it is impossible for humans to know them. How can humans hope to uncover the mysteries of the universe if all they have to explore it with are their own, fallible, easily deceived minds? Perhaps harder still, how can humans even begin to understand themselves? when the only tool they have is the subject of inquiry. As Xenophane suggests, the best we can hope to do is to guess. However, scientists, psychologists and specialists of the physical sciences do not like to think of their work as guessing. Rather, they employ the scientific method, an elaborate series of testable, falsifiable, educated guesses or theories that carve off ever thinner slices of truth. To establish the best guesses, though, requires data and sound methods of obtaining and testing it. It is this search for data that led to behaviorism and eventually cognitivism, or as it is more commonly known today, cognitive psychology. The behaviorists developed a range of methods of gathering data which they then used to construct theories about the nature of human behavior. Conditioning demonstrated that humans and indeed other animals could be trained to perform predictable actions. The proof of the pudding was in the observed behaviour. However, because they could not see inside the mind of the subject or measure it in any instrumental way, they could only guess as to what was going on in there, so they disregarded it. All that mattered to the behaviourists was the quantifiable information going in and the observable behaviour coming out. But clearly, what happened on the inside was crucial to understanding what led to behaviour. Indeed, it could be argued that what takes place inside the mind is behaviour, but of a different kind. A universe of cognitive events following a pattern of cause and effect of input and output, the combination of which leads to observable behaviours, like conditioned responses. Beyond just behaviour, though, is the very act of thinking itself, cognition. The purposeful, intentional, directed decision-making based on the entirety of human experience. Could humans really be so shallow that all behaviour can simply be reduced to stimulus and response? For the behaviourists, the answer to this question was yes. Humans have a capability for thought that surpasses all other species. To reduce the mind only to its observable behaviour, though, is to neglect the very essence of what it is that sets humans apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. Don't our thoughts and feelings directly influence our choices and therefore our behaviour? And what if behaviour is not directly observable? Does that mean the individual has no essence at all? Consider the 2014 work of Lorena Nacy and colleagues. They were interested in whether those in a clinically vegetative state were conscious. In their experiment, they played an eight-minute Alfred Hitchcock short film to a group of participants. 
The film is called Bang, You're Dead, and it follows Hitchcock's typically suspenseful style. A five-year-old boy is playing with a toy gun, but he soon discovers a real gun and bullets. He proceeds to load a single bullet and spin the chamber before going to roam the neighbourhood. The tension increases all the while as he points the loaded gun at passers-by. Eventually, he points the gun at an unsuspecting bystander and pulls the trigger. But the gun doesn't go off. The round was not in the firing chamber. Finally, back at home, the boy's father notices the boy is playing with a real gun. He lunges for it, and at that moment, the gun goes off, shattering a mirror. No one is hurt, and the audience breathes a sigh of relief. It's an intense eight minutes. In the experiment, the participants watched the film while their brains were monitored by an fMRI machine. A map of their neural activity was then prepared, which demonstrated the areas of the brain most consistently active during suspenseful moments of the film and those inactive after its resolution. Much cognitive work is being done to follow the plot of this short film. It requires understanding what a gun is, what it does, and what the risks associated with a gun are, and why it's inappropriate for a little boy to have a loaded one, and all of the events that follow. But here is the really interesting part about this study. One of the participants had been in a non-responsive coma-like state for 16 years. When he was shown the film, his brain responded to the suspenseful moments in the same way as the healthy participants. While the participant was seemingly in a vegetative state, his brain was active. He was conscious. The researchers write, quote, We demonstrated for the first time to our knowledge strong evidence for the conscious experience of a brain-injured patient who had remained entirely behaviorally non-responsive for 16 years. The patient's executive engagement and moment-to-moment perception of the movie content were highly similar to that of every healthy participant. These findings shed light on the common basis of human consciousness and enable the interpretation of conscious experience in the absence of behavior. This finding was made possible because of cognitive science, namely the ability to observe and map activity within the brain directly and not via observable behavior. However, it took many decades to reach this level of sophistication. So to understand how we got to this point, we must go back again to the beginnings of what became known as the Cognitive Revolution. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, studies of cognition were generally eschewed in favour of behaviourist accounts. However, there are notable exceptions which laid the foundations for the Cognitive Revolution. A famous example was a study conducted by the psychologist Edward Tolman at University of California, Berkeley in 1938. In this experiment, Tolman placed a rat in a plus sign-shaped maze with a piece of cheese down the right arm of the plus sign relative to the rat. After several repeated trials, the rat learned to turn right immediately to find the piece of cheese. However, after controlling for the scent of the cheese, Tolman placed the rat at the opposite end of the maze, but he left the cheese in the same arm, so the rat would now have to turn left to find it. If a behaviourist account of learning was to be true, the rat would be expected to turn right as it had in the many previous trials. However, interestingly, the rat immediately turned left, following the correct path to the cheese. Tolman reasoned that the rat must have developed a mental model or what he called a cognitive map of the maze. Thus it could determine the location of the cheese based on its map of the maze and not its prior behaviour. This finding was well outside of conventional behaviourism which prevailed at the time, but suggested that cognition played a significant role in behaviour beyond merely the stimuli-response interaction. By the 1950s, psychologists continued to find theories of behaviourism incomplete. 
While it was not then possible to see directly into the mind, inferences about cognitive processes could be made through similar types of experiments. Experiments conducted during the Second World War, for instance, had also been designed to optimise the performance of soldiers and airmen when completing complex tasks. Soon, researchers began to suggest the mind could be better thought of as an information processor, operating according to certain rules and mechanisms. One popular finding of the time was that humans can hold only around seven pieces of information in their mind at once, plus or minus two. This appeared to be a limitation. However, of course, we can recall thousands of pieces of information about all manner of subjects and experiences. Two different forms of memory were theorised, short-term or working memory, which is limited, and long-term memory, which, while somewhat unreliable, is virtually limitless. A process had to be taking place whereby information is stored from short-term working memory to long-term memory for later recall. The psychologist George Miller pioneered this research and introduced the notion of chunking, where information can be grouped into chunks to increase its recall ability in short-term memory. Around the same time, the first computers appeared. Researchers attempting to design artificial intelligence machines began to think of human cognition in more concrete information processing terms. How did the brain operate in order to solve complex problems? You could not simply condition a set of components to behave in a certain way. There needed to be a logical flow of information acting according to a set of predefined rules. When coupled with studies of human information processing, it became apparent from inductive reasoning that cognition was, at base, all about information processing. Perhaps the final nail in the coffin for behaviourism came following the critique of leading behaviourist B.F. Skinner's work, Verbal Behaviour, by the linguist Noam Chomsky. The book described how children learn language through conditioning, but Chomsky pointed out that children say many sentences that have never been rewarded by parents, such as, I hate you mummy, and that during the normal course of language development, they go through a stage in which they use incorrect grammar, such as, the boy hitted the ball, even though this incorrect grammar may never have been reinforced. As we explored in the series on language, Chomsky believed that language learning was an innate behaviour, pre-wired into the human brain. He developed a complex theory of language learning based on mathematical principles and structural modelling. It was George Miller, a friend and associate of Chomsky, who brought these theories to psychology and and spurred an explosion of research into cognitive psychology, which continues today. Behaviorism's long period of intellectual hegemony began to fall out of favour as more and more scientists assembled pieces of the cognitive puzzle through different studies. The cognitive revolution had begun in earnest. Aristotle once proposed that the heart was the source of human thought. He might be forgiven for thinking so, but as we now know, cognition takes place in that massive jelly between the ears called the brain. Your brain is a massive tissue weighing just over one kilogram. It's so soft that it's suspended in cerebral spinal fluid to dampen its bumps against your skull. Around 60% of the brain is fatty tissue, but it's in the approximately 100 billion neurons jammed into its many folds known as gyri, that the magic of cognition happens. Neurons transmit information to other neurons through a process known as electrochemical transmission, interfacing with thousands of other neurons via synapses. It's estimated that the average human brain has more than 200 trillion synapses. If we think of the information processing capability of each neuron like a tiny computer, then the processing capacity of the brain via all of those interconnections becomes hard for even all 100 billion of our neurons to compute. Yet as expensive and complex as that processing capacity is, it is limited to specific types of tasks. The human brain can interpret information and make decisions extremely quickly, 
yet it's not very good at calculating square roots. But as yet, no artificial intelligence comes close to the novel cognitive abilities of the human brain, even if a pocket calculator outperforms every human who has ever lived at simple arithmetic. The power of cognition is not found in any single neuron, but in the way networks of neurons exchange information. One 1993 study demonstrated this well. Participants were played words, nonsense sentences, followed by coherent sentences, and their brain activity was measured. As the sentences became increasingly complex and coherent, more and more regions of the brain showed activity, almost as though different networks came online to process the information. We can visualize this simply by thinking about a word, say, banana. At the sound of the word, we may imagine a banana and its associated properties. We may also engage emotions depending on whether we like bananas or not. Now, if I put the word into a nonsense sentence, like, say, a rotund banana backwards on admiration, we recognize the individual words and try to make sense of how they should go together, but we soon give up. It just doesn't make sense. However, if I say, peeling a banana is necessary to eat it for breakfast, we immediately recognize the actions and the outcome, and we may even want to eat a banana. In this correct sentence, we've introduced concepts like grammar and temporality, subject and object. The sentence is simple, but vastly more complex than just the word banana in its referent, and requires engaging complex levels of information processing. Now extrapolate that to all forms of thought, and we begin to see that there's a lot going on there that influences our behaviour. The cognitive revolution then went beyond the question of what stimuli leads to behaviour to where does that behaviour come from? The human mind, as an analogue for a computer, is a popular beginning point of the cognitive revolution, as I mentioned earlier. But to understand this more clearly, we need to consider the evolution of the computer itself. The first computers began to take shape during the 1940s, and they worked by processing information in stages. First, information was received by an input processor, and then it was stored in a memory unit before being processed by an arithmetic unit, which derived the output. Using this approach, psychologists proposed the human mind also worked as an information processor. The British psychologist Donald Broadbent was the first to propose a flow diagram similar to that of a computer when considering the way attention is directed to a specific stimulus while other stimuli are ignored. Large amounts of information are received via the sensors, then they pass through a filter which determines which information is relevant to attention. Information that makes it through the filter is then encoded and sent to working memory. This process is what underlies why you hear your name spoken from across the room at a noisy party. The detector element is attuned to detect something it recognises. The brain as a processor also gave rise to the notion of mental models, that is, the brain builds representations of the world based on the stimuli that it receives. The Scottish psychologist Kenneth Craig pioneered research into a variety of man-machine interface systems for pilots during the Second World War. He died in a tragic accident in 1945 at just 31 years of age, but he left the suggestion that the mind constructs models of reality. He said, quote, If the organism carries a small-scale model of external reality and its own possible actions within its head, it's able to try out various alternatives, conclude which is the best of them, react to future situations before they arise, utilise the knowledge of past events and dealing with the present and future, and in every way react to a much fuller, safer, and more competent manner to emergencies which it faces. End of quote. This idea of mental models extends to the cognitive maps earlier theorised by Edward Tolman and demonstrates that understanding how the brain works can be inducted sufficiently through experiment and reason. Another well-known representative example comes from a 1966 experiment conducted by the psychologist Saul Sternberg. 
Participants were shown a few digits called a memory set, say 5, 9 and 2. They were then asked to keep them in mind. Then they were tasked with recognising as quickly as possible whether one of those original digits in the memory set was present in a series of numbers. As the memory sets became larger, the number of correct responses dropped and the response time to identify them decreased linearly. Sternberg constructed an abstract theory of information processing based on this experiment. First, participants encoded the numbers they were presented. Then they compared these to the original memory set. Then they decided whether the digit was the same or not, then generated the response. Each step could be outlined abstractly without referring to any specific part of the brain or a neural process or representation. While this work was helpful in establishing how the brain operated theoretically, it left a gap in the explanation of how the brain works at a physiological level. By the 1970s, the first textbooks on cognitive psychology were being published, and while they were replete with descriptions of abstract models of information processing mechanisms, they left out the crucial realm of higher mental processes like problem-solving, long-term memory, and thinking. Present-day cognitive psychology has drifted from mere theoretical explanations to functional explanations of neural activity informed by the advent of technologies like magnetic resonance imaging, as in the NACI study, positron emission tomography, or PET, and electroencephalography, or EEG. Each technique provides evidence for how the brain operates, although each comes with attendant strengths and limitations. The result is a complex understanding of neural topography, that is, how different regions of the brain are associated with different functions and how regions respond to varying types of stimuli. So what types of things have been learned about how the human mind functions? What knowledge has the paradigm of cognitism actually offered us? Well, the answer is a lot, but I'll consider just one here. Problem solving. We solve many types of problems every day, from finding the coffee pot is empty, to not knowing how to deal with the latest outburst from a petulant teenager, or calculating the lift coefficient of the wing of a Boeing 747. How we go about solving these problems follows a process where we first create a mental representation of the problem, formulate possible strategies, then select and implement one. There are many different theories on how this process works. The German Gestalt psychologists of the 1930s considered that people restructure problems, creating different representations until they come up with an insightful solution, which just clicks. Other times people use analogies of the problem at hand to find a solution. For instance, what worked in a previous context may be relevant to new problems. Then there are the differences between experts and novices. Are experts smarter than novices at a particular set of problems? Not necessarily, the differences in how they view problems and the relationship between elements of a problem. A novice just doesn't have the reps to see the wider connections and relationships. So the effective problem-solving capacity of the expert is a matter of experience and long-term memory. The expert recognises patterns quickly and is able to view many small pieces of information in larger chunks assembling these pieces together. To the expert, the puzzle pieces are much larger and fit more obviously together, but for the novice the puzzle appears like many small pieces with no obvious relationships. Then there is out-of-the-box creative problem-solving. The following quote comes from Bruce Goldstein's excellent book Cognitive Psychology. A student is sitting at a physics exam when he's asked to describe how the height of a building can be measured using a barometer. He wrote, attach the barometer to a string and lower it from the top of the building. The length of the string needed to lower the barometer to the ground indicates the height of the building. The professor was looking for an answer that involved measuring barometric pressure on the ground and on top of the building, using principles learned in class. He therefore gave the student a zero for his answer. 
The student protested the grade, so the case was given to another professor, who asked the student to provide an answer that would demonstrate his knowledge of physics. The student's answer was to drop the barometer from the roof and measure how long it took to hit the ground. Using a formula involving the gravitational constant would enable one to determine how far the barometer fell. With further prodding from the appeals professor, the student also suggested another solution. Put the barometer in the sun and measure its length of shadow and the length of the building's shadow. The height of the building could then be determined using proportions. Upon hearing these answers, both of which could result in correct solutions, the appeals professor asked the student whether he knew the answer the professor was looking for, which involved the principle of barometric pressure. The student replied that he did, but he was just tired of repeating back information to get a good grade. And the footnote to the story is that this student was Niels Bohr, who after his college career went on to win a Nobel Prize in physics. Creativity and creative problem solving is the enemy of expert knowledge. The most effective creative problem solvers are those who can leave behind preconceived ideas of how problems should be solved. When examining the brain during problem solving, it's been found that different regions are involved in the aha, insightful, creative form of problem solving compared to the slower, more analytic approach. It's important to think about the brain as a network of networks. There are many neural networks currently known. Some of the most common involve vision, somatomotor, that sensory feel and movement, executive control, and the default mode. Activity switches between neural networks quickly and continuously. As the visual network is engaged in observing an object, the executive network is engaged to think about the object and to decide to do something with it. Then the somatomotor network engages to pick it up, and the default mode network activates as the mind enters a period of relaxed contemplation while holding the object, in this case, a glass of wine. This last one, the default mode network, is one of the most recent to be discovered and is perhaps the most fascinating. When areas of the brain light up under fMRI, they form networks associated with different tasks like I just described. The default mode network, however, lights up in the absence of a task. It's the resting state of the brain when the mind wanders, daydreams or is otherwise not directly engaged in a conscious task. Interestingly, the default mode network is one of the largest neural networks and we spend something like half of our conscious time in this mental state. It's been found, and you'll probably recognise this in yourself, that sometimes if we're struggling with a problem, it's only when we switch off that that aha moment comes to us. That's the default mode network doing its thing. It is highly engaged in creative problem solving, and the process of allowing the mind to wander is known as incubation. However, this is something of a paradox, as the executive network, which is engaged when focused directly on a task or problem, is also engaged during creative problem solving. It has been found that the most creative people have increased functional connectivity between their executive control attention networks and default mode inattentive networks. Why this is so and how it really works is not fully understood, but it could be theorised that when we focus on a task, we create a representation of the problem. Then by easily slipping into an unfocused state, perhaps when considering another less challenging or routine task, the default mode network works on the original problem, and then the insight is found. The brain then rapidly switches back to the executive network as the novel solution is applied to the problem. All of what I've described here has been learned over the course of many hundreds or thousands of studies using a combination of experiment, monitoring of the brain and the development of new theories to explain the findings and develop more experiments to fine-tune that knowledge. Similar knowledge has been learned for many other functional aspects of cognition, from memory to visual processing and spatial reasoning. Taken together, cognitive psychology and its related field of neuroscience 
has learned much about the workings of the human mind which far extend upon the stimulus-response paradigm of behaviourism. However, despite these advances, there remains a vast unexplored aspect of the mind which remains inaccessible to even the most sophisticated of instruments, thought and intentionality. To conclude this brief episode on cognitivism then, I want to consider the limitations of our present level of knowledge. Back in 1990, the psychologist Jerome Bruner published the book titled Acts of Meaning, which attempted to reclaim some of what he felt had been lost with advances in neuroscientific and experimental psychological techniques. Of the cognitive revolution, he explains, quote, It was, we thought, an all-out effort to establish meaning as the central concept of psychology, not stimuli and responses, not overtly observable behaviour, not biological drives and their transformation, but meaning. Its aim was to discover and to describe formally the meanings that human beings created out of their encounters with the world, and then to propose hypotheses about what meaning-making processes were implicated. It focused upon the symbolic activities human beings employed in constructing and making sense not only of the world, but of themselves. The cognitive revolution became fractionated and technicalized. Emphasis began shifting from meaning to information, from the construction of meaning to the processing of information. These are profoundly different matters. The key factor in the shift was the introduction of computation as the ruling metaphor and of computability as a necessary criterion of a good theoretical model. End quote. We have already seen how advances in cognitive psychology were inspired by the invention of computers and formal systems for developing artificial intelligence. Rather than computers being modelled on human condition though, in fact, the inverse is true. Because we've been able to design logical information processing computational machines, we've applied these theories to our understanding of the mind. Human cognition, for all of its complexity and sophistication of the 100 billion neurons of the brain, is simply a vast system of cause and effect where one bit speaks to another bit. But somewhere in that tangle of connections, emotion and desire, every memory, every like and dislike, every love and hurt, every passion, every creative expression, every word, every thought, everything that makes you, you, emerges. But as yet, we cannot see those thoughts. We cannot determine where the sense of what it is like to be you emerges in consciousness, and we cannot explain how your consciousness gives meaning to the world and the events that occur in your life. The insights provided by cognitive psychology are expensive, but incomplete. Cognitive psychology today falls into the positivist paradigm, that if we can only develop the right tools and techniques, instruments and theories, we can reduce all of the workings of the brain to clearly articulated formulae and explanations. However, nowhere in the textbooks on cognitive psychology that I've consulted in the preparation of this episode is mentioned the influence of culture or intentionality. Indeed, these areas are something of a taboo in the physical sciences. For many years, psychology fought to be taken seriously among the physical sciences, a feat it finally achieved with the advent of behaviourism and the discarding of the inner workings of the mind altogether. The cognitive revolution figuratively and literally peeled those layers of the brain back to answer important questions about how the brain functions. However, psychology still must represent the totality of the human being, and so much of us cannot be reduced to the work of neurons, at least beyond their functional sense. We are complex social creatures, with social networks as advanced, intertwined and important as the neural networks which regulate our actions and behaviours. Human beings are not black and white behaviour machines where stimuli in equals response out, 
there's an entire universe of cognition that takes place in between, which is influenced by the vagaries of culture, experience, and subjectivity. Understanding neural networks or synaptic connections does not tell us why we make certain decisions the way we do. Often, we cannot account for our decisions. There is some knowledge which is unknowable even by the knower. And this type of decision-making cannot be articulated by carefully contrived research studies which measure response times and action potentials. Despite our physical similarities, we are all different. Some of us are creative extroverted lunatics. Others are creative introverted bookworms and everything in between. Cognitivism may describe these differences, but it does not explain them. Yet it is these very differences which make us so unique and so remarkable. That means there is yet another chapter to explore in this unintended series on isms, where it will return to one of my favourite subjects, culture and its relationship with experience. As Xenophane said, for certain truth, no man has known it, all is but a woven web of guesses. And we'll look at a few more of those guesses in the next episodes. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <music>